Thank you. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you on Resurrection Morning. Yeah. Resurrection Morning. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 21, and I'll join you there shortly. Um, <laughs> I hear the laughter. It appears that some of you know me already. John's Gospel, chapter 21. I'm going to start with a little levity. I heard about a husband that died and left his wife $20,000. And uh, after the funeral, she told a friend that she was broke. And the friend said, I thought your husband left you 20000 She said he did. But I spent 5000 on the burial and 15000 on the memorial stone. She said, wow, I'd like to see that stone. She said, you can. She held up her hand and says, there it is, three carats. <laughs> I told you chapter 21, I actually meant chapter 20. Now I'm going to do everything I can to make this reading as quickly as possible. Um, there's some 18 verses that we're going to be reading, we won't have time to examine them all. Beginning in verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter. There's a lot going on in these verses, as you'll see. So Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, don't you just love the humility of John, always referring to himself in third person, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. There's a lot of frenetic activity that's going on here. And stooping down to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon came following him and just went into the tomb impetuously as he was known for. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And these next few verses contain the real message that I'm after Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the foot. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus. Now notice what unfolds in these next few verses very closely. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? This is the second time that she's asked that question. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I've not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. Now, I find several different things that are unique and even intriguing about this first resurrection sighting. 
I don't know whether you noticed, but it wasn't Mary, the mother of Jesus, that is at the tomb first, but is this woman who has previously an infamous reputation, Mary Magdalene. In Luke's gospel, I think in chapter 8, we have the description of this woman's psychotic condition. Uh, She is described as being possessed by seven demons. And uh, on the basis of this particular announcement, maybe you already noticed that she becomes the initial, the first apostle to the apostles. While the disciples have fled in fright, she is engaged in this situation and she has to go that next morning to see him one more time, or so so she thinks. Now, there'll be a number of different appearances that Jesus will make over a 40-day period of time in unexpected ways uh, to unexpecting people. But I find it rather ironic that he would appear first to Mary Magdalene. You know, there are other supplemental books, writings about the, the historical account of the resurrection that actually indicate that Jesus also appeared to Caiaphas and Annas. Now, I know that's not in the scriptural narrative, but he also appeared to Caiaphas and Annas, these men that were responsible for the greatest travesty of justice that had ever been committed, And he also appeared to Pilate. Now, that may be far-fetched to a lot of you, but I find that interesting that Jesus actually did that, even though it didn't find its way into the scriptural narrative. It would make sense to me if I had been raised from the dead out of that situation, that's who I would appear to first. (laughs) I would wake Pilate up out of a sleep. I'd wake Annas and Caiaphas up, jar them, rock their world. But I'm not Jesus. Mary Magdalene was heartbroken. She was traumatized. Her PTSD wouldn't allow her to unremember or unsee what had happened to Jesus just 72 hours before. Uh, I I want this to be relevant, not just a reflection. I I know that there are a number of people in this room, if you have a pulse, you've experienced some form of trauma. PTSD is not just something that is relegated to people that have been through events like war or natural disaster. Uh, I understand that the word has been overused, misused, and abused, this concept of post-traumatic syndrome. But this is what she's experiencing. She'd stood at the foot of the cross along with Mary, his mother, and John, who gives us this account. She had watched the man that she loved more than life itself, who had been robbed of his dignity. He stripped naked. You know, so much of religious art gives us a rather sanitized version of the cross and what it really looked like. But even though his body had been mutilated beyond recognition, he, I don't want to be too graphic, I could spend the rest of the morning talking to you about this man whose body had been mutilated, eviscerated to the point that he was beyond recognition. It would have taken dental records to identify him. And she stands there for six agonizing hours watching this happen to him, watching him pull himself up with what little strength and stamina he had left because he sleep-deprived And he is in a dehydrated state. And whenever he pulls himself up in order to get 
His lungs filled with air. She can hear the effects of asphyxiation. She can hear the wheezing as he's trying to breathe. That's what's etched in her mind. You talk about trauma. Can you see that? Can anybody see that? She is in the grip of grief. Between Good Friday, which was more like a gruesome Friday. Would you agree with that? Between Good Friday or gruesome Friday and Resurrection Day, Mary, the mother of Jesus, John the Beloved, Mary Magdalene, they're all in the tight grip of grief for three days. And I want to say something to you about grief for those of you that are in the grip of grief right now. And it may sound rather counterintuitive at first, but grief, I believe, greets us to teach us that life is about letting go and holding on as well. We have to let go, but then we hold on as well. It's in between where it's, it's in the in-between where grave robbing ghouls seize our emotion. The reason why that she assumed that his body had been stolen was this was a common problem in the days of Jesus, especially where he was buried. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, a man of means. So the assumption, these ghouls, you've heard the word ghoul before? That means a grave robber. How grotesque and insensitive is that? That's what she assumed has happened because they believed that there was something there of value. But I want to come back to this whole thing of trauma. And maybe I should have told you what my topic was. I think I will now. (laughs) It's found in the verse here, verse 15. When Jesus asked her, after the angels had asked her the same question, woman, why are you weeping? She supposed him to be the gardener. My topic for you, if you're looking for something to remember, is she was surprised by the supposition. She was surprised in her supposition. Now, when it comes to the word trauma, um, a lot has happened in the last 30 years or more around that word, and I'm not sure if it is happening more, we finally have a word to describe what has probably always been happening. All of these emotionally traumatic things that happen that scar our human psyche, memories that are held essentially in our bodies more than they are in our minds. There's a book that I've been looking at lately that, is, that talks about this idea that the body remembers what the mind forgets. Our mind is very clever, isn't it? Our mind is very sophisticated and has the ability to suppress, has the ability to store things in a way that uh, are difficult to retrieve. But the body never forgets. There's a particular science referred to as epigenetics. And just bear with me here because I think it's relevant. Epigenetics talks about how that memories can be stored at a cellular level in our bodies. Can you imagine that this is not just in her mind, but this is something that is in her very body, what she had witnessed? This can't be true. I believe this is worthy of noting here that there are wounds that never show on the body that are much deeper and more hurtful than anything that could ever bleed. Now, I don't want you to feel, I'm beginning to sense here maybe in the early goings that the mood is a bit morbid. (laughs) But I do think it's important that we realize that people who do not feel deeply will never know deeply. 
we live in a culture that has conditioned us in many ways not to feel. We've been desensitized, haven't we? In so, on so many levels. So it's important that we get inside the psyche of Mary here and somehow try to feel what she was feeling because maybe it will help us to make sense of what we feel. You know, there are people that I'm meeting every day that are weary in mind. Not just weary in their bodies. They're, they're weary in their, in their psyche, in their consciousness. And they just, they can't deal with it anymore. And I think that's the reason why we're given this story about Mary. She has been eyewitness to the unimaginable. And there's just some things that you can't unremember. Anybody? There's just some things you can't unremember. You can't unsee it as much as you try. You know, we, we have all these elaborate means by which we attempt to distract ourselves rather than leaning into it and feeling it. I'm a believer that if we don't... See, when we look at the cross, most of us see it as some kind of transaction that took place between God, the Father, and Jesus, and that's not at all what happened. I've said it here before, I'm sure. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The world needed to be reconciled to God, but God didn't need to be reconciled to the world. Jesus didn't die that horrible, almost unimaginable death in order to appease a vindictive God. I think I'll say that again. I said, Jesus, I say it without fear of contradiction. Jesus didn't die that death to appease a vindictive and vengeful God. The death that he died on the cross is a witness to us to this day of what we do to one another and what we do to ourselves. That Jesus absorbed it all. This is the cruciform reality. This is what reality is. Jesus absorbed it all. All of the hatred and all of the scorn and all of the shame. Anything, the warp and woof of all human experience, he absorbed it all. Not as a victim, because we live in a victimized culture where everybody, their whole story, the, you know, we live in a culture that has a wound identity. It's what you did to me. And somehow it gives me supposedly some moral high ground because I can continue to remind you of what you did to me. But Jesus, the ultimate victim, hmm, he absorbs it all and he doesn't become a transmitter of it, but he becomes one who transforms it. And I want to tell you that whoever has caused you pain, whoever has caused you pain, certainly they're culpable for what they did. I understand that. But you know who's responsible for your pain now? You are. I have really provoked a lot of people with that statement, but I know that it's true. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous to suggest that the scapegoating culture that we live in and the victimization that people choose to live in that that sounds insensitive. And to say that that somehow gives you a sense of moral high ground, that sounds ridiculous to most people. That's really what it does. And all you do is just continue the cycle. But Jesus is stretched out like a piece of canvas suspended between heaven and earth, stripped naked of all of his dignity with wounds like we could never adequately describe and he takes it all and shows us the path toward transformation. Are you with me so far? Sure, I mean, it, did you notice it says here in verse 
One that she got there early in the morning and it was still dark. Well, that's obvious. But maybe there was another form of darkness that she was experiencing that was not just as a result of the sun not yet hemorrhaging over the eastern horizon. She's walking through the misty morning, maybe feeling her way or possibly stumbling. And as she walks in the dark, there is an equivalent darkness that is going on inside of her. Some of you might right now be learning how to walk in the dark. Do you know what that's like? To walk in the dark? I mean, I I don't know about you, but I've learned things in the dark that I could never have learned in the light. You know, really, I grew up in a church culture that darkness always had the connotation of evil or ignorance. But uh, Isaiah says that there are treasures in the darkness. This whole thing started in the dark. God even dwells in the darkness because to him, darkness is not darkness in the way that we see darkness. Are you dark to that? It's just not the same. For some reason, and I have, as you've already probably uh, sensed, uh, my thought processes are rather strange. And I make no apology for that. Um, But while we were singing earlier, I thought about something that sounds like somewhat of a conundrum in Ecclesiastes when he says, better is the day of a man's death than the day of his birth. You say, well, I understand that because it comes from Ecclesiastes. You know, it's this kind of book if you're not depressed. You can get depressed real quick. Vanity of vanities, you know, you know, you know the storyline. But isn't it true? When a human is born, we are filled with joy and laughter. And then when that same human dies, we're weeping. And he says the converse of that ought to be the truth. I don't want to mess with you too much here, but, you know, when a baby is born, maybe instead of laughter, we should be crying because they've come into this world of pain and suffering. At least when they eventually die, they get to escape it. For those of you that are visiting this morning, (laughs) please don't make your judgment about this place based on what I'm saying today. But new life starts in the dark, whether it's a seed in the ground or a baby in a womb or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And if you're in a dark place right now, that's wonderful. Because they're probably, you're probably going to stumble on some treasures there. Because when she gets to the tomb, she doesn't realize that that tomb, pardon this if it sounds like a pun or maybe trite, this tomb is going to be turned into a womb. You know, I'll just take a segue here. I'll, I'll take a little bit of a digression You know, in Ephesians, he talks about how that we are to grow up into him who is the head of all things, correct? And he talks about, in Corinthians, he talks about that he is the head and we are the body. Are you still with me? He is the head and we are the body. And he says that there will come a time when the last enemy, which is death, will be put under his feet, So you follow those sequences, right? So when a baby is born, the first thing that emerges is not his feet. The first thing that emerges is that child's head. And usually the head is larger in terms of proportion to the rest of the body. You still following my logic here? So 2,000 years ago, 
the pangs of death, the birth pangs of death cause the head who is Christ to emerge from a tomb that was turned into a womb. And now subsequently his body has been being made manifest for the last 2,000 years since resurrection morning. And maybe we just might be the generation that will reveal the part of his body, his anatomy, which are his feet, which will eventually put death under his feet. Can you see that? Mary knew that Jesus had died, but she didn't know that death had died. I love saying that. Death had died. Come on, let's say it together. Can we, can we get a little participation? Death had died. Death had decimated. I've been teaching here, but you know, I, I may just shift into another gear. If I can get a witness here and there. Death had so decimated the human race since Adam and Eve had ingested this fallacy, this lie that they were separate from God. Because that's what death is. It's not the cessation of existence. If I collapsed on this platform right now and the EMTs came in and they couldn't resuscitate me, I don't cease to exist. I'm separated from you and you from me. That's what death has always been. It's been this myth of separation. And when they ingested this lie, and it happened where? Oddly enough, it happened in a garden. That's why all this had to culminate in the garden. Because the Genesis account starts in a garden. And here we have a garden in the middle. And in Revelation chapter 22, you will come, 21, you will come to another garden because it's always been about where he started, which was in a garden. <clears throat> She's squinting. Are my eyes playing tricks on me? No, that can't be true. That stone weighs hundreds of pounds. Matthew's account says that there were 16 guards there, right? And they're in a coma. Yeah. The stone had been rolled away. The angel appeared and roll the stone away, not so that Jesus could get out because Jesus is going to be walking through doors and traveling with the speed of thought for the next 40 days. So he doesn't need that stone to be rolled away so he can get out, but the stone was rolled away so we could get in. I was thinking... This morning, what it must have been like in that confined, suffocating, dark, dank tomb, his body. Of course, we know, according to Peter, he wasn't there. According to the, the letter that Peter wrote and according to what Paul wrote in Ephesians, you know, in Ephesians says, he who ascended first descended into the lower parts of the earth, right? And he led captivity captive. I always found that language rather unusual. He led captivity captive. And Peter echoes it whenever he says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, into the bowels of the earth, where all those who had been looking forward to this fateful day had been held in a holding, holding place called Hades. And there he preached to them the reality. The first message that he preached in his resurrection experience was in those three days when he's in the bowels of the earth. And when I, do you, you follow me on that? I mean, you've heard preachers, this is fodder for, you know, preachers, you know, they, they just really work this thing, you know. When he, when he kicks a hole in the grave, in the bottom of the grave, and descends into the lower parts of the earth. And there's John the Baptist, who had been beheaded three and a half years before. He's been talking to Isaiah and Malachi. 
And they're all standing there and through the darkness of this place, they see him coming. The light of the world, the resurrection life, the eternal one. Isaiah said, I told you about this hundreds of years ago and there he is. And Matthew said that not only Jesus was raised from the dead, but many of the saints were seen walking the streets of Jerusalem. And that doesn't make the news for both of us, does it? But see, whenever he says in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter that he descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive, captivity captive, because now we're captive to something else. We're not captive to death and to sin. We're captive, captivated by his love by his relentless, inescapable. I love saying that. I will emphasize his inescapable, relentless love. There's no way for you to backslide. There's no way for you to turn your back on God because there's no place that you can be that he's not already there. There's no way for you to not be in the presence of God because the presence of God is pervasive. If you turn your back on him, you're still facing him. Don't worry if you feel condemned that you have not been pursuing him. It is he who has been pursuing you all along to begin with. And what he's waiting on is for you to wake up and to come out of your comatose state He's waiting on you like Mary to stop your convulsive weeping on what used to be. And remember, she lunges at him when she recognizes him. And she recognizes him from the resonance of his voice because there was nobody that could say her name like he said, Mary. (laughs) She clings to him. And there's so much behind that, I don't have time to unpack it all, but I'll just in a practical application. Many of us are being surprised by him in unlikely places. And we tried to cling to what we knew him once to be. Now, I understand that he had to fulfill his high priestly duty. So don't work on me now, theologically. I know what he had to do. But see, there's so many of us that need to be surprised by him again. And the only way that you're going to get surprised by him is stop clinging to what you have known about him. Because really, wouldn't it be cool if he reintroduced himself to you this morning? She would have known him anywhere, but she didn't know him there. (sighs) She's surprised by the supposition she thinks is a gardener. Well, it isn't a garden. I mean, do you realize that Jesus could actually see where they would lay his body from where he's hanging on the cross? He could actually see it. It was across the way. It all started in a garden, like I said. He's always been a gardener. Oh, no, he was a carpenter by trade. But no, he was a gardener in the beginning. So what what does that have to do with me? Because he loves getting into the weed-infested parts of our lives. He loves getting into the dirt. He doesn't mind getting dirty. (laughs) He loves getting into the humus. He loves getting into the things that have died and decayed and deteriorated because he can work with that. He's not a lawyer. No, he's not a lawyer that is litigating the law. He's not a conductor that is punching your ticket to heaven. He's a gardener that's getting down and dirty organically in your life because he knows that what you're groaning through what you have been groaning and grumbling your way through, that there's something that can grow out of it. I'll come in for a landing with this. 
Notice uh, again the, the angels say, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? What a ridiculous question. I mean, really, let's be honest. Why would they ask her that? They, they already knew the, the answer. Why would they ask her that? Because I'm not sure that she fully understood what was motivating her to emote in that way. And then Jesus would ask the same thing. Why are you weeping? It's not insensitive. I think sometimes he surprises us. He ambushes us in the same way he did them. He did her. And he asks you the question, why are you weeping? What are you weeping about? It does not reflect indifference. It really reflects compassion. And I love what he said to her. He said, go to my brothers. What? Remember, they had been disciples, and he tells them in 15 of John, I believe it was John 15, he said, uh, before now, I've never called you friends, but I call you friends. Well, he shifts the relationship up a notch and says, go tell my brothers. In other words, born of the same womb. Go tell my brothers. And in that misogynistic culture, this is huge what follows. I mean, we see it in the Eastern world the misogyny, the oppression, the mistreatment of women. But we can't even begin to understand the degree and the depth of it in that first century world. I mean, a Pharisee would get up in the morning and say, I thank God that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. And I thank God that I am a man and not a woman. That's how bad it was. That's the reason why it was, it was so risque for Jesus to have so many interactions to interface with women. From the woman at the well in John 4, remember? I mean, it, can you imagine what it had been like back in those days if the paparazzi had been there with their long-range cameras and they captured images of Jesus, this rabbi, this single rabbi, who was talking to a woman who had a reputation, or so we think. Boy, that had been all over the papers the next day, wouldn't it? But Jesus is regularly doing that. He's regularly engaging with women. He is restoring them to what is lost. The reason, the reason for the misogyny of the Old Testament bleeding over into the New is because of this gross misunderstanding that it was the woman. Remember, Adam said, it's the woman that you gave me. There we have scapegoating right there in the early days. What, what have you done? Well, it's the woman that you gave me. And so the myth has been carried on making women inferior. And Jesus comes and disrupts all of that, not only in his interaction, but by the way, I'm going to appear to a woman first. And we misinterpret. Have I gone over my time? We, we misinterpret so much of the scripture. Well, she is the weaker vessel. You don't want to get me started on that. You don't want to get me started on the, your misinterpretation, your faulty hermeneutic in understanding what Peter was saying. He was not degrading women. There's far more behind that than that statement. You know, if you think that she's a weaker vessel, then I'd like to see you crawl up on a delivery table, buck. And give birth to an eight-pound baby. Let's see who's the weaker vessel. You got me off the subject again. Go tell my brothers. 
And did you notice this? The disc, the disc get by you. I'm ascending to my father and your father. In that little exchange right there, in, in just that little exchange. See, we just, it's amazing how we can just read over these things and we don't, we don't really feel what's going on there. The transference that takes place. That literally her DNA was transformed. No longer are you hearing me. You know, the scripture says in Galatians that cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree and that he became a curse for us. That's what it means to be born again or re-gene-arated. In that moment, he altered, if you allow me, he transformed her genes. I'm just this way. No, 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 no. That's the biology of your beliefs. You can have such an encounter. You can have such a surprise encounter with the gardener that so transforms you at a genetic level. Come on with me now. I'm telling you, when I got up this morning and I looked in the mirror, I still have the same hairline that Leon Worley had. I got it from him. And you probably got it from your dad. I look at my hands and I'm thinking, yep, those are his hands. But I understand that there is something deeper in me that happened as a result of his resurrection that so transformed my genes that I don't have to live life as if it's a sexually transmitted disease. I don't have to live life as if it's a sentence I understand that he came that I might have life and have it more abundantly, not life after life, but life within this life. That I'm having this human experience, not so that I can be in constant pursuit of spiritual experiences, but to know that I'm a spirit that arrived here, manifested 64 years ago. I love messing with people when they ask me how old I am. I say, do you want to know when I manifested in time? Is that what you want to know? I manifested in time, August 4th, 1958, but I'm much older than that. My mother's womb was nothing but a dressing room for me to manifest out of eternity into time. And I'm having this human, I'm having fun is what I'm doing right now (laughs) on resurrection morning. I'm having this human experience as a spirit being so that I can be a messenger, an apostle. Don't mishear me, as she was, a sent one. Of my encounter with the gardener. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to experience the American dream. I'm not here to find a wife and have 3.5 children. (laughs) that's not what I'm here for no I'm here to have the ultimate experience I'm here to have the experience of empathy with the rest of the human race as he came to because the only reason why that he incarnated and the only reason why you incarnated is so that you could begin to feel what other people feel It's it's just that simple what is the will of God for you Well, what was the will of God for the archetype of all humans? Who was the only human one, the real human one? It was Jesus. And the only reason why he incarnated was so that he could feel what you feel. And that's why you incarnated. That's the will of God for your life. So, I know that there are people, and I feel this so strongly in this moment, just waves of it coming over me. I've been a wreck the last few weeks. A wreck in a good way. Because somehow I've begun to realize that We've missed the cross because we stood like Mary, traumatized, looking up at a bleeding, hemorrhaging Savior. 
And we forgot that beneath all that mutilation, there was a heart that was palpitating and pounding with love where the beams intersected. For those that were mistreating him. I believe his compassion is present here this morning. And for people that have been traumatized, women that have been raped, grown men who've been sodomized by a father or an uncle, or a neighbor. People who've been traumatized to the point until your feelings are carterized and you want to feel, but you can't feel. The gardener is here. His compassion is here. For people who feel as hollow and as empty as that tomb, he's here. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I understand that when God really shows up, things get awkward. And that's a good thing because whenever things get awkward, that means we're not in control anymore, which you never were to begin with. I want to pray. Uh, There'll be a ministry team here that will clean up my mess. But I want to pray for people that I just described, or maybe your trauma is in another form. And you've been scarred like I described. I want you to stand right now if you need to be touched by the gardener, if you've been traumatized. Thank you for your courage. I probably have told this story before. A guy I know who's a best-selling author, his name is Ted Decker, tells the story of a woman who experienced a, a transformational moment, an epic watershed moment in her life after now being in her 40s. She's taken back to when two 16-year-old boys were violently raping her. And she was in that moment all over again. And Jesus is standing beside of her. (sighs) Jesus is standing beside of her in that moment. And he's weeping as he's watching what had happened all those years ago. And she looked at him. And this sounds like Jesus. She said, as he's weeping, why? Didn't you stop that? Why did you let that happen? And he said, I was not just weeping for you. I was weeping for them. Father, you are our father. I ask that you would let them feel now your arms that are so expansive that reaches out and takes them right where they stand. I'd like for the worship team to come. I should have asked you already as discreetly as you can. Father, heal the trauma. 
Some of them have spent thousands of dollars on therapy. And all it is is just a rehearsing and a nursing of what happened. Come now, I ask, move in and out of every row and every seat. Compassion, compassion, it's a gut thing. It comes from the very gut. And I ask, Lord, that they'd feel that in their gut right now, at the core of who they are. They don't need to be touched up here. They don't need to be touched between their ears. They need to be touched in their very gut because that's where compassion originates from and that's where compassion finds its place. So let healing happen now. Let that healing happen now. It's not that they won't ever again remember it. You won't erase it from their memory, but they will remember it differently. They will remember it differently. They will be able to say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? They'll remember it, but it won't sting anymore. Thank you for taking the sting out of it, Lord. Are you feeling that? Are you receiving that? feel his compassion so strong here this morning. they be surprised as Mary was. May they be surprised in the same way that Mary was. In the days ahead when they keep going back to that place where trauma occurred that they're able to turn and see that you are there walking among the tombs you're there taking what they have been in the grip of and growing something new out of it in Jesus name in Jesus name everybody stand I'm not sure what key I should be in it's been a long time since I've attempted to sing but you guys know the old chorus I love you Lord and I lift my voice to worship you oh Rejoice, take joy, my King, take joy, my King, in what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your Let it thunder in here.
everybody now. I love you, Lord. Oh, yes, I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. time and that will get the let the Baptists get out of the restaurants so you can get there. I love you Lord you Lord and I live my voice my voice to Sometimes when we ask people, you know, to clap their hands, they don't even know what they're doing. You know, he doesn't need your applause. The clapping of the hands in the Old Testament was what people did when they saw their conquering king coming home, dragging the vanquished king behind them. They would line the streets and they would clap their hands, which was a, it was not an applause. It was it was the gesture of how that their king had smitten the king, the enemy. So it gives a whole new meaning, you know, to clapping your hands, right? Clap your hands, all you people, and what follows? Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. So our king has strolled through hell 2,000 years ago and he's dragging his enemy behind him and he's made a show of principalities and powers. So I think that deserves us all just tearing the roof off of this place by clapping our hands and shouting (laughs) unto God with the voice of triumph. special uh, word, I felt like. Thank you, Randall, for being coming, and we're very honored, and we're honored to receive a special word like that. It really was. And So I'm going to, as you leave, if you want to make a, we want to honor Randall, and uh, we're just going to have the ushers to stand at the door with a basket if you wanted to put some money in there, a check, make it to River Life. It'll all go to Randall, I promise. Uh, or you can do it online. Uh, there's a place online where, like you do normal giving, where you can, for a special speaker, can do it like that also. So so we'd like to have some ministry team people. If anybody would like to come up and receive uh, personal ministry, for you to come up. I'm going to pray. and Thank you, Lord. The Lord's good at me. Wow. 
that, that message exceeded my expectations, and I've heard Randall's, I always enjoy his messages, but that was really probably one of the best ones I've heard from you, Randall. Thank you so much. It's was, it was full, of, full of God. Amen? Wow. Yeah. So, Father, we thank you today, and we thank you that you have risen. Lord, we're not grave tenders no more. And, Lord, I believe even on some personal levels this morning that some of us have been tending to graves of the past, of our failures or the hurts, the trauma, whatever it may be. But today, Lord, you're bringing us into that resurrection life in a fresh way, in a new way. And we're just declaring that today. We're declaring that triumph and that freedom, healing, Lord, to come forth. Because Jesus Christ is alive today. And Lord, we just want to say this. Lord, we thank you that when you died, we died. And when you were buried, we were buried. And when you rose, we arose. And when you ascended, we ascended. And we declare that. We believe that. And Lord, help us to walk in that going forth today in the name of Jesus. God bless you, and if you'd like prayer, you should come up. Thank you, Randall.